0: At checkout. That's amazing. And that is code
1: Gaze24, gaze 24 gaze for 20% off any Moon travel guide in Moon's entire library. And that is just for our listeners, and you cannot find that anywhere else.
0: Be sure to visit
1: moon.com. Head to our show notes and check it out and see Moon's entire collection of travel guide books. <music> Hello and welcome to Pride Mix. It's Gaze at the National Park's takeover of Pride Month. That's right. It's, That's right. It is Pride Month. It is Pride Month. So, um, we so wanted to do... bust out your
0: rainbow flags and...
1: And get ready. And get ready. <laughs> you know what's so funny, Mike? Right. It's like every right. June, I stop like sweating, like real sweat, and it it's just to turns glitter. to gold glitter. Gold glitter. It's true. All the gold glitter.
0: hmm It's an, actually an incredible feat of science. You've been flown in for medical studies. I All know. the time.
1: All the time. All the time. And then, like, I just have a rainbow or I mean all gays have rainbow auras. we should tell all of the folks listening the like gay secrets that happen every pride month right. like for instance skittles are no calories during right. June it's like true. you can eat all of them and they just don't count it's true and that has been extended to all people not mm-hmm. just LGBTQ yeah. identifying people
0: yeah it's true shares music makes you a little lighter and mm-hmm. actually you can levitate a little bit when yes. you listen to believe oh yeah, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah you actually float you do you yeah float.
1: you have levitation power it's true and anytime madonna plays a dog is rescued oh <laughs> it's true
0: so it's the opposite of sarah mclaughlin's commercial literally right, right, right so a dog gets mm-hmm. rescued
1: every single time yeah it's beautiful also copies of vogue are free for lgbtq mm. identifying yeah. people in june
0: we do get some great benefits we do yeah you just have to show your card Right, 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 right. Right. Right.
1: And they're a little more lenient on attending the weekly meeting. Like, if you don't attend, it's like, it's real bad any other month. But but because, you know, the gay agenda is so real. And we have to, like, make sure that it's, you know, Mm -hmm. kept in check at all Mm -hmm. times. Brunch
0: and then world domination.
1: Exactly. And so um, in June, they're a little more lax because there's so many events.
0: Lots of brunches.
1: So there are lots of brunches. So what are we up to for Pride Month, Dusty? We are celebrating Pride Month. We're going to lean a little harder into the queer angle of this podcast Mm -hmm. and offer episodes that are gay Mm Pride-centric. And so that is what we are doing here in the month of
0: June. Yeah. So what are we doing today on Pride Mix, Mike? We're taking a look at the National Park Service's LGBTQ Heritage Theme Study. And we're
1: taking a look at all of the National Historic Places that emerged from this
0: study. So, Dusty, what is the LGBTQ heritage theme study all about? Okay, so
1: in 2014, the Department of Interior, which was headed by Sally Jewell at the time, who should be a drag queen, she Ms. should Sally Jewell. Sally Jewell. This was during the Obama administration. Mm-hmm. They had decided that the National Park Service. They well, they had concluded that the National Park Service, which is Largely referred to as America's storyteller Mm -hmm. in many of its own documentation. It wasn't very inclusive in the stories that it was telling, that it was only telling certain stories and not enough stories of intersection. So it was very white and very straight. It was very much those things. Mm -hmm. All the like heteronormativity that I'm sure you can imagine. Right. Right, which is sort of like, you know, Like watching an episode of The Bachelor. Yeah, or all (laughs) of American history. Just like, you know, colonialism is the way. You know, like that kind of thing. So Sally Jewell and her team at the National Park Service issued a um, press release. And they did this at the steps of Stonewall Inn. Mm. So Stonewall Inn was the first national historic site. Well, it became a national monument. It sort of like was the launching point for this new heritage Theme study. And so these are some clips from that press release. The theme study is a part of a broader initiative under the Obama administration to ensure that the National Park Service reflects and tells a more complete story of the people and events responsible for building the nation. The National Park Service has ongoing heritage initiatives to commemorate minorities and women who have made significant contribution to our nation's history and culture, including studies related to the history of Latinos, women, and Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders. Secretary Jewell made the announcement outside the Stonewall Inn in New York City, the site of the riot in 1969, that is widely recognized as the catalyst for the modern civil rights movement in the LGBT community. It is currently the only LGBT-associated site that has been designated a National Historic Landmark by the National Park Service as a property having extraordinary significance in American history. Now, this was in 2014. That's not true anymore. And it has now become a national monument. Mm -hmm. It Um, was a national
0: (laughs) site, though, in 2000, it was made a national site.
1: Right. Right. Um, And this is a quote from Sally Jewell. We know that there are other sites like Stonewall Inn that have played important roles in our nation's ongoing struggle for civil rights. The contributions of women, minorities, and members of the LGBT community have been historically underrepresented in the National Park Service, and the LGBT-themed study will help ensure that we understand, commemorate, and share these key chapters in America's complex and diverse history. This is a quote from the National Park Service director, Jonathan B. Jarvis, at the time. The National Park Service is America's storyteller and protector of the places where America's history can be found. As we prepare to celebrate the National Park Service's centennial in 2016, we have rededicated ourselves to sharing more diverse stories of our nation's history, particularly the struggles for civil rights. By telling these stories, we are inviting new audiences to visit their national parks and historic sites and to discover a personal connection in these places. So, the study, it was uh, funded, the funding was provided by the Gill Foundation, and it was provided through the National Park Foundation. But the, um, this is a quote from Tim Gill, who is the founder of the Gill Foundation. He said, LGBTQ history is American history. The contributions of LGBT people are part of the great American journey toward full equality, freedom, and liberty for all our citizens. While we take this important step to recognize the courageous contributions of LGBT Americans, we need to unite together in the days ahead to ensure we leave none of our fellow Americans behind. I couldn't agree with him more than right now. In this moment, right, um, and so they said that over the next twelve to eighteen months, they would be researching and digging deep mm-hmm. into our history to identify places that are significant in LGBTQ history. This press release can be found on the National Park Service website, um, and. All of the documentation that we're referencing today came right from NPS.gov. So they have a whole section just on this study that you can um, go to research and like, I mean, there are pages and pages Mm -hmm. of information here. So what did you find, Mike?
0: So the press release talks a lot about how important LGBTQ people are on so many levels to the history of the nation, but also to the history of the national parks. And a lot of setting that up and and kind of thinking about, you know, why this study was enacted, they really go into the history of like, why LGBTQ people were in the background um, for so long. A lot of the history that is of our community was erased um, through basically laws that were enacted and just general prejudice. A lot of information that was gathered and that historians were able to gather were through police proceedings, medical reports, military hearings, and immigration records. And some of the sites we talk about a little later will, you know, that will come into play. You know, a lot of what the history of LGBTQ people have endured in the history of the nation until quite recently was things that were in the background. Um, They were, you know... not considered to be normative, quote unquote. Literally um,
1: the definition of marginalized. Right. Push
0: to the margin. Yeah. A lot of that can be described through the word queer and what the word queer meant and still means. Some people still view it as a slight against the community, although some people have adopted it and really have taken the word queer as like a mantle to be a descriptor for that community. For a little while, i um, Queer was not necessarily a word that was a slur, but it was a broad term or category to encompass the experiences of peoples whose identities did not fit neatly into the current categories of gender and sexual identity. That's very interesting. Yeah. Fit neatly. Fit neatly. So it was this kind of like catch-all term that was used for so long. And I mean, even just thinking about the word queer, I think like my grandmother used to use the word queer, but she meant it not necessarily in that way. But like, I think queer also is like odd. You know what I mean? The, the idea of that just like gay before gay became like the kind of like nomenclature was a word that was used to mean happy. Um, so it's just this idea of advancing language and kind of the ever changing fabric of our dynamic English language system. As we go on, there's so much that is visible that shows how people handled Homosexuality or queerness. It was viewed as sexual inversion and it really was looked on as nonconformity. It really wasn't until more and more doctors and psychologists started to kind of take a look at human sexuality, Alfred Kinsey, among others, that we started to see that, you know, sexuality is a very rich tapestry and queer and the idea of being gay is not something that is subversive or not normative at all. So, you know, we're seeing a little bit of that history and how that starts to kind of intertwine with some of the things that we're going to be talking about, and also how it helps those things to develop throughout history. We also know that through these studies that gender identities aren't fixed. Also, something that the NPS didn't want to do, they didn't want, NPS did not want to assign labels to historical figures that would maybe not be known to those people at the time or would not be accepted by those people at the time. An example is Jane Adams from Hull House in Chicago. She had sustained intense and personal relationships with a number of women and she worked and lived with them too. But she would not have understood the term lesbian. So they didn't want to apply that term to that historical figure because it's a term that they were not familiar with and that they didn't think was fair to describe that person as. The study goes on to talk about how a variety of LGBTQ people throughout history were really fundamental in the arts and culture that had happened in the United States and how their contributions really helped to inform a lot of the history that we're seeing. Um, A lot of these historical sites were informed by that. The study also goes on to start to talk about queer activism and how that played a role into various sites and how that played a role into the history of many things within the nation and the civil rights for LGBTQ people that really were kind of jump-started through the Stonewall riots in 1969. So everything that I just talked about were things that, through this study, NPS was looking at as they were kind of considering and thinking about these historic sites and these historic landmarks and how they would be kind of included in this rich tapestry that is LGBTQ history and how that factors into NPS. And that leads us to two years later. It's
1: 2016, and they release what is called the LGBTQ Heritage Theme Study Official Report. Now, this official report was authored by so many people. One person did not write this report. A ton of people wrote this report and wrote different sections of this report. Mm -hmm. The report is over 1,200 pages long. It cannot be contained in one PDF document. It's an afternoon read, guys. (laughs) But it's such a cool read. It is all available on the mps.gov website. It breaks it down really easily. It's so digestible on the website. If you, literally, if you Google the LGBTQ Heritage Theme Study report, it will lead you right there. It breaks down the entire report into different chapters. Each chapter is written by a different author. When you click on it, it'll give you essentially what is a an overview introduction of what is covered in that chapter. Then you can click on it, and it'll bring you right to just that chapter in the PDF. Uh, and I highly recommend reading it. It's such a great resource for um, all of this history. Mm-hmm. Here are some examples of some of the chapters that you will find in the report, which is LGBTQ Archaeological Context, A note about intersectionality, making bisexuals visible, sexual and gender identity in Native America and the Pacific Islands, transgender history in the U.S. and places that matter. There's a chapter called Breathing Fire, remember Asian Pacific American activism in queer history, Latino and Latina gender and sexuality, where we could be ourselves, African American LGBTQ historic places and why they matter. LGBTQ spaces and places. I could go on and on. There are 32 chapters in this report. And each one, uh, unfortunately, we did not read this entire 1,200-page report. It's a lot of chapters to It's read. a lot of chapters. But we did find um, some things that we do want to share. And now I'm going to share with you some highlights from Chapter 7, a note about intersectionality by Megan E. Springate. She begins this chapter with a quote by Audre Lorde, which says, there is no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. And this is the opening paragraph. Intersectionality is the recognition that categories of difference sometimes also referred to as axes of identity, including, but not limited to race, ethnicity, gender, religion, or creed, generation, geographic location, sexuality, age, ability, or disability, and class intersect to shape the experiences of individuals. That identity is multidimensional. These identities are not mutually exclusive, but interdependent. LGBTQ is not a single community with a single history. Indeed, each group represented by these letters, which mean lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and queer, is made up of multiple communities. The axes of gender, generation, geographic location, ethnicity, and other factors play an important role in the history of LGBTQ America— shaping the various histories of LGBTQ communities across the nation and the places associated with them. For example, the experiences of rural LGBTQ individuals are different from those in urban areas. Those of white gay Latinos different from those of gay Afro-Latino men. Middle-class African-American lesbians' lives differ from those of working-class African-American lesbians and middle-class white lesbians. The idea of intersectionality is not new. In her 1851 speech, now known as Ain't I a Woman, Sojourner Truth spoke about the intersections of being a woman, being black, and being enslaved. In the 1960s and 70s, black and Chicana women articulated the intersectionality of their lives, forming black feminist and Chicana feminist movements as their experiences as women of color were ignored, belittled, and or erased, by the largely white middle-class women's movement that treated race and gender as mutually exclusive categories. In their lived experience, oppression as people of color, as women and as women of color could not be untangled. The term intersectionality was first used in print by Kimberlé Crenshaw in a law journal describing the problematic effects of a single axis approach to anti-discrimination law feminist theory, and anti-racist politics. Since then, intersectionality has become an important concept across many disciplines, including history, art, and architectural history, anthropology, geography, sociology, psychology, and law. An understanding of intersectionality is important for place-based research and historic preservation because these axes of difference can affect the physical places associated with communities. They also affect the relationships that various individuals and communities have with places. People who own instead of rent their homes and commercial buildings are more likely to be able to stay in their neighborhoods as housing prices increase a result, for example, of gentrification. Using an intersectional approach that takes into account income disparities based on race and sexual orientation, it becomes clear that lesbians and transgender individuals, especially those of color who tend to have lower incomes than others and therefore cannot afford to own their homes, are forced out of neighborhoods more rapidly than middle-class gay white males who tend to have more income that can be invested in purchasing buildings. Similarly, because lesbians as women have tended to have less disposable income than gay men, there have tended to be fewer lesbian clubs and bars. Instead, white women and white women of color, as well as people of color, tended to meet and socialize in private spaces. The meanings of places also differ across the various LGBTQ communities. For example, the Michigan Women's Music Festival, founded in 1976 as a women-only space, has been an important event in the history of women's land, women's music, and community-based organization. However, the festival has also had a history of excluding transgender women. This resulted in the founding in 1991 of Camp Trans, a protest encampment by transgender women and their allies just outside the festival grounds. The Michigan Women's Music Festival means very different things to these different communities. Some experience the place as one of inclusion and visibility while others feel oppressed and excluded. An intersectional approach to history provides a much more complete and nuanced understanding of our past. One that includes the experiences and voices of those who are often silenced in dominant narratives that focus primarily on the actions of those with privilege, including white, middle and upper class heterosexual men. One instance where an intersectional approach to history that included previously excluded axes of ethnicity and the working classes provided a more complete history is in the study of women's rights. The dominant narrative of women's rights recognizes three waves. So I am really, really glad that this study decided to include an entire chapter about intersectionality because the gay white male narrative is often the one that floats up to the top of the surface first Mm -hmm. or it's the first one that's seen Mm -hmm. and so i deeply appreciate this and this is why this has like sparked my sort of like excitement to like dig deeper into this and i'm glad that part of this initiative was to research these spaces that are not currently included in what appears to be the lgbtq historical narrative
0: right yeah i think that unfortunately the world tends to highlight those stories over others and i think the idea of recognizing minorities even within the community of the lgbt community is an important thing and i think recognizing and celebrating those things and like really putting a spotlight on them is such an important endeavor considering that you're right a lot of the times that gay white male story is the one that floats to the top just like, unfortunately, the white story of white America is the one that is most often in the spotlight and, you know, has taken center stage for so long. So, you know, the report, among other things, really does look at a lot of different avenues in the LGBT community and really does kind of under a pretty good microscope see what needs to be said. I mean, you heard those chapter titles. It's really a lot about just thinking about not just lgbtq as a whole but kind of drilling down deep and finding how there are spaces that are important to different ethnicities within that community and how those have kind of molded and shaped the community and how those have better informed the narrative of lgbtq history and in turn really brought that to the public eye
1: and that brings us to LGBTQ Spaces and Places, which is also the name of chapter 11 in the report, which is by Jen Jack King. and I hope I'm pronouncing that right. As LGBTQ people have been invisibilized, criminalized, and outcast, they have created ways to respond specific to their geographies. Like the injustices they have suffered, their tactics of resilience and resistance and their spaces and places are similar to, but unique from, other marginalized groups. Since sexuality is not always visible in a person's appearance, certain types of places and spaces have developed as key environments for LGBTQ people to find one another, develop relationships, and build community. Due to unjust laws and social mores, socialization among LGBTQ people focused on sex and relationships or was limited to small groups until the late 19th and early 20th centuries. LGBTQ people created social and political spaces in order to share face-to-face contact and find community. The physical landscape of LGBTQ lives therefore plays a special role in this group's history. So now let's talk about some of those places that they identified. Mike, tell us about one.
0: Great. So there are a lot of wide ranging spaces that are pretty well known within the gay community and with even in the the general kind of zeitgeist as far as like what is known as like a gay space space. Um, So one of those spaces is um, the Castro District in San Francisco. And that is a traditionally gay neighborhood in San Francisco. It really is a space that is very safe as far as the gay community would kind of consider it. It's a space that you and I have both been to, I believe, oh, on yeah. separate occasions, not together. I think I've been twice. It's it's a pretty incredibly set up sort of neighborhood. I mean, a lot of larger cities do have somewhat of a gay neighborhood or a neighborhood as it's called. Um, and the Castro District is probably one of the more prominent ones um, along with like Boys Town in Chicago right. or the gayberhood in Philadelphia, um, just to name a few. other cities. But yeah, the Castro, I think is a space that, you know, most people think of. Um, I think San Francisco is a city that most people think of when we think of the gay community. So that, you know, makes a lot of sense.
1: And um, the Castro District is also, you know, the the place where Harvey Milk was first elected mm-hmm. to public office. He was the first gay person elected to public office who was out. Openly gay, yeah. Openly gay person. But yes, again, here we are. We we can't avoid talking about the Castro District when we're talking about gay spaces. Right. The Castro District I would say now is a little more a little more intersectional mm-hmm. than it was in the I past. Think so. But I mean, coming from the past, we're also getting a lot of the, you know, white male gay narrative right. coming from there, along with like other places like Fire Island, which is another place that the NPS identified, which was a place people could go to outside of the city and they could like live freely and they could be, be who they were. But or, it was also a yeah. lot of white men. Mm-hmm. Now, when they finally published this report in 2016, by the time they did, there were 10 now national historic sites that were established due to the findings of the study. And so here are a few that we would like to mention. The first one is uh, the Bayard Rustin Residence. Uh, this is in New York. Um, Baird Rustin was a gay African-American Quaker, and he was a civil rights advocate. He was a proponent for nonviolence um, and a campaigner for social and economic
0: justice. There's also Edificio Comunidad de Orguillo Gay de Puerto Rico, and it's known commonly as Casa Orguillo. It served as the meeting hall for the first official gay and lesbian organization established in Puerto Rico. It was founded in 1974, And it was one of the first attempts to confront social, political, and legal discriminations against that local LGBT community.
1: Another place which um, was in New York is Julius's Bar. It's in Greenwich Village. And it is significant because it was, like, it's one of the oldest gay bars in New York. It is one of the oldest ones that is also in continuous operation. And it dates back all the way to the 19th century and was a meeting place for gay people but again early 19th century i don't know that it was like not all gay bars in new york were always inclusive of every sect of the lgbt community just like the women's music festival
0: wasn't right and i do I think, think that you know like many things albeit sometimes slowly that intersex is kind of happening where there is more acceptance. There is more community um, that's driven more by commonality than there is difference, um, and I do feel like that is starting to become more of the mainstay, um, especially now, within the LGBT community now. Now, not in the past. Um, I do think that that is something that we're seeing more of. Is there still discrimination? We're starting to see more. of Sure, yeah. of course. There's, you know, that's the case. You know, regardless of where you're at. Um, unfortunately, that is something that we have to deal with in the world. And it's, it doesn't make it right. Um, it just happens to be. Tell us about another one of these places. Um, well, I think, you know, the report does a good job of also delving historically back to talking about a bunch of different places. There are some places that are kind of larger communities, but I will talk a little bit about Alcatraz Island, which is in San Francisco in the Bay. And it was a large community, or it was an island that was surrounded by Native American communities before um, white settlers arrived. Um, and Those communities, you know, the report does a good job of also talking a lot about like Native American sexual identity and how there were many Native American tribes or many Indian tribes considered there to be a third sex or an intersex. Yes. And Um, they use
1: the term two spirit and the two spirit term,
0: the two spirit term was like.
1: Technically, and it says this in the report. Officially recognized because of this conference that happened in Winnipeg, Canada, in 1990, and because of that, like a whole bunch of other groups and organizations like were created in that, and they used that term to spirit
0: from mm-hmm. there. But um, it does talk a lot about how the Native Americans did have those alternate gender roles and how, you know, through, unfortunately, the way that Native Americans were treated, a lot of that history and a lot of that intersex or that third gender was erased. Um, And it really wasn't until 1969 where there was a multi-tribe overtake of Alcatraz Island where Native American kind of activism really took a stronghold that Queer Native Americans started to have a stronger sense of themselves within the community, and they started to feel that support on a larger sense from those multi tribes, um, and they were able to reassess and reassert their their gender identity um, within the community. But you know, Alcatraz, aside from being an important space for Native Americans, and LGBTQ Native Americans was also a space that saw a lot of prisoners being held because of sodomy. It was a space where a lot of people were jailed because of that charge. And a lot of those record books aren't in existence anymore from the whole span that the prison... Was an operation, so it's uncertain to how many men were jailed because of that. But their sentences could last anywhere from five to fifteen years. A lot of these sentence criminals, quote unquote criminals, were people that were in the military. Um, so a lot of the times what would happen through that charge of sodomy, they would also be dishonorably discharged. And that would be something that they would carry with them for the rest of their lives. That dishonorable discharge often really was almost even worse than being a criminal um, in the eyes of the public. Alcatraz is an important place or an important space in LGBTQ history from before the country was even a country up until, you know, present day. Another place that was identified in this report was the
1: Pueblo of Acoma in Cabola County, New Mexico. This section of the report uh, talks a lot about how there was a role of, like, essentially the effeminate man in this Native American culture, and they would often wear female-like clothing, and they would often fulfill women's roles in the community. And it was suggested that they were treated very kindly in this community, and like they had a very specific role. According to the report and people they talk to who are descendants of this tribe, they said that uh, these specific kind of effeminate men who went by a few different names but they said that they had varied levels of cultural acceptance one person said that they were very much accepted and that they dressed, talked and lived like women because they wanted to and in their body they were men and they were accepted and then there were other people in the culture who considered it a shame one of the achievements of this Coquina the name that is sometimes associated with this role one of the achievements was the ceramic artwork that came from the tribe. They were highly prized for their utility and their intricate designs and it required incredible skill and physical stamina to create this pottery. And that pottery still lives on today. So all this to say, this LGBTQ Heritage Theme Study report is like a real deep dive, but it is so well-researched and my feeling about it is that they really came at it from the right angle, with the intention to be inclusive.
0: Um, I think that it really does provide a pretty incredible, like ten thousand foot view of the history of LGBTQ people within the national parks and, it's and not within just the nation through one lens. Right, it's, it's through, through many, multiple lenses. many, and many I think, lenses. I think having multiple authors was really an incredible incredibly smart thing to do. First of all, no one's writing 12,000 pages by themselves. I mean, I'm sure they could, but you know, it's giving different people from different walks of life, that opportunity to research and do a deep dive um, into their own community. Even I'm sure was an incredibly smart thing to do because it allowed for a much closer understanding of how that community operated and, you know, what the inner workings of it were.
1: And let's end this pride mix with a game. What game are we going to play today, Mike?
0: We're going to be playing a game called Flaggots. Now, this game is a nod to... There's a group in New York, called the, York called the Flagets. They are flag dancers. Are, is that the technical term, flag dancers? And that's
1: what I call them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> they danced with flags. We marched behind them in a pride parade. We marched once, behind them, which in we'll the, talk about at some point in the New York Pride Parade. Right, right, right. And they
1: did the same routine to Kesha's Timber for four hours. <laughs> and by the end of it, we had all memorized the routine, right? And had and were doing it with them,
0: right? With our pride flags. With our pride flags. So in this game, I'm going to be talking about the different, fl- the different flags that represents different parts of the LGBT community. So we all know the rainbow flag is our kind of like gay banner flag. But there are a lot of other flags within the community that recognize different parts of the community. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm ready okay. to do my best okay. here. Okay. This flag includes the colors gray, black, white, and purple—a very somber flag, indeed.
1: You know, I don't know. The only flag that is coming to mind right now is the like uh, the black, white, and like blue flag. When it's like, I support cops. Like that flag is coming to mind right now, and that's not right. What is
0: that? It's the flag for asexuals. The asexual. The flag. asexual flag. All right. Okay. Um, this flag is different shades of browns, yellows, and grays and features a paw print. Um, is this the bear flag? It is. is it's it bear, bear culture. Bear culture? Bear culture. Okay. Um, so, um, for those of you not in the know, bears are members of the gay community that are larger hairy men, typically. Yep. Yep. Um, this flag features two interlocking Venus symbols and is often shades of purple. Is it the lesbian flag? It is. That's correct. Right. Um, this flag is pink, yellow, and blue, basically our primary colors if we're thinking about it from a color standpoint.
1: Is it the bisexual? It's I'm not, sorry, hold on. Did I say that already?
0: You did. You didn't say bisexual already. You haven't guessed that. Is it the bisexual flag? It's not bisexual. It's pansexual. That? The pansexual. The pansexual flag. flag. Oh, okay, okay. Um And this last flag is a symmetrical design that is five stripes, blue, pink, white, pink, blue. The trans flag. That is correct. Most certainly the trans flag. That is. That is correct. And that's our game Flagguts. There are plenty of gay flags within Um, the community.
1: Mike does not know this bonus game. Oh, bonus game. Bonus game. Secrets. All right, this is flag, It's 2.0. Oh. Okay, this is all about the rainbow flag. Okay. Each one of the colors of the rainbow flag represents something and has a very special meaning. Oh. I'm going to give you the color, and you have to guess the meaning.
0: Oh, wow. That's a lot. But okay. okay.
1: Great. We're going to start easy. Yellow. <laughs> <laughs> Courage. Incorrect. Okay. Yellow represents sunlight.
0: Sunlight. Okay.
1: Okay. Great. Similarly, what does green represent? The earth? Nature. Okay. Yes, correct. Okay. Um, red. Love. No. Red ap- actually represents life. Oh, okay. Um, For blood. Maybe. Orange. Mm, joy. No. It represents healing. Oh, okay. Um, Things I would have never known. Turquoise. I mean, turquoise is sometimes not included in the rainbow flag, but in the original pride flag from 1977, it is included. And I really like including turquoise. Turquoise. Clarity. Incorrect. It's magic and art. Oh,
0: magic. I love it. I love turquoise. Them Wicca Um, queens up in here. Indigo. Spirituality. Alma, I
1: sort not know actually. Indigo <laughs> isn't spirituality, um, it's serenity. Okay, but violet is spiritual, is spirit, exactly. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes they include hot pink, mm-hmm. and um, pink actually does represent sex. Oh, so that is that's a real big the flag, Meaning It's a of lot the, of stripes, it is. I, well, yes, yeah. So, and those are the um, meanings of the pride flag colors. And that is It's 2.0. 2. <laughs> this has been Pride Mix by Gaze at the National Parks, the podcast. And we're here to remind you to pride early and pride often.
0: And that resilience is always out there.
1: Gaze at the National Parks was created and is hosted by Dustin Ballard and Michael Ryan. This episode was edited by Dustin Ballard. All original artwork featured on Instagram is by Michael Ryan. All original music was written and performed by Dave Seaman with Mariella Klinger. Follow us on Instagram at gaze at the National Parks. And
0: email us at gaze at the national parks at gmail.com.
1: Tune in the rest of this month for more Pride Mix episodes.